I'd like to share a word with you this morning that is the entrance or the introduction to what we are going to be focusing on this year as a, a focus that we believe God has with us. And this whole idea of discipleship, and we felt that it would be good for us to, in various different ways this year, take different angles and look through what does it mean to be a disciple. So starting today, and, and we'll have different parts that we'll add and through the year, um, we're going to start this journey together that we've called The Disciples' Quest. So the theme for our here is The Disciples' Quest, and we want to talk about this thing of what does it mean to be a disciple and this quest that we are on. I, I learned, I didn't know this because, you know, English is my second language, that where you put the apostrophe evidently makes a difference into what you mean. So if you put the apostrophe where it is now, it's talking about the disciple in a singular form. If we put the dis dis apostrophe after the S, if I'm right, then it becomes this disciple plural, us together. So the, dis the apostrophe is put in that place because we want to consider this, each of us individually, what does it mean to be a disciple? And I'd like each of us to think through that this year. Therefore, this term, what we're going to do to work through that from a biblical basis, we're going to take a look at the book of Ephesians. And we're going to read Ephesians together and take some learning from Paul about what does it mean to be a disciple. The word quest was also chosen very carefully by us that sat around and we felt we had a moment of inspiration from the Lord one day as we were praying together about this. And the word quest is to bring about this idea that this is a very purposeful journey that you're on as a disciple. When I hear the word quest, one of the pictures that comes into my mind is, is that of people that love climbing mountains. And you know these people that, that would put their life at risk to scale the highest mountains and to climb up to the peaks of some of the mountains we have. And when I speak about these, your names will come to mind for you like um, George Mallory, Edmund Hillary, Tenzing Norgay, and evidently there's, I've never heard his name, but Reinhold Messner. These are famous mountaineers, people that have moved onto the highest places on our planet at great risk and climbed mountains. But there's a name that should be mentioned among all of these names that, is, that probably most people have never heard of, and, and that's the name of a lady by the name of Alison Hargreaves. How many of you have ever heard of Alison Hargreaves in the context of mountaineering? Is there anybody? Wow, that's quite phenomenal. Somebody. Okay. I've never heard of this person's name, Alison Hargreaves. Now, Alison Hargreaves was a, 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 an amazing mountaineer. She was the first person, male or female, that scaled all of the six major mountains in the Alps ra range, mountain range, in one season. She scaled all of them. She was the first woman that climbed Everest without additional oxygen being given to her. And now to, uh, there's evidently 4,000 people that have scaled Everest, that climbed the, the, the highest peaks in Everest. Only 200 people so far has achieved that feat without add extra oxygen. And she was the first. And in the time when she did it, 1995, there were actually a very few people that got that right. So she was one of the first people that did that. Probably the reason why even though she achieved all these amazing things and many other feats that she did, that the reason why we don't know about her is because not only was her quest about climbing these mountains and overcoming the physical challenges of it, but also she had such social quests that she had to go through because, first of all, she was a woman. And as a woman, it was felt that women would not be able to do this. 
And uh, so it wasn't given much attention in that sense. But probably even more so, more controversial about her is that not only did she do it as a woman, she did it as a young mother. And the question society struggled with is should something so daring and so risky be done by a person that's a young mother? Evidently, in society, and I'm not saying yes or bad or judgment on this, but in our society, it's okay for men that are fathers of young families to do this, but women, it was something that it's hard for us to consider. So this made her quite unknown in the world, and like we've just proven, how few of us know about her. In uh, 1993, she for the first time scaled Everest, and then decided that she was going to scale uh, the K2 peak, which is considered to be the most dangerous climb that one can do in 1995. Evident, uh, just sort of on the side, the first time she scaled one of the major mountains in the world, she was six months pregnant with the oldest son already. So I say nothing. So, so in 1995, she and a, a group of five people planned, and in August, the weather was right and everything worked out, and so they set off and they climbed up to K2, and uh, they radioed eventually to say that they've made it and they've summited K2. On a wonderful day, great celebrations, and, uh, but then weather turned, and those of you that have seen movies about mountains and people climbing mountains will be aware of how quickly the, the weather can change in a, on a mountain. So the weather changed, and on their way down, some strong winds took over, and she got lost. And uh, later on, a party that came down the mountain said they, all they could see is if at some point they saw some of her clothing and her uh, a backpack lying in a place. And still today, she is on the mountain as, her, as she passed away, descending the mountain on that day. And um, it's too risky and too dangerous for them at a certain height to do uh, missions where they recover the body. So there are actually quite a number of bodies up there on the top of K2 and hers being one of it. And this was a tragic story. Years later, when they started speaking to her son, of, as, as one of the people just about this, her son said, you know, he had no choice but to become a mountain climber himself, seeming that already before he was born, he was on a mountain, you know, as a in his mother's womb. And uh, so he said even his mother's death did not scare him away from the mountain, but actually drew him to the mountain. And now he's done every one of her climbs, he's done it in her honor again, and uh, carrying on in that legacy of hers and climbing the mountains. Um, and, and the family sentiment was this, that she died doing what she loved. She died doing what she loved. So in a sense, you can say she died by living. She died by living. And uh, this is a sad story, and, and, and it's, you know, whenever I think of stories like this, or when I've watched people that, and there's a friend, we have a friend that has climbed some of the seven major mountains in the world, and when I see him, there's one question that comes into my mind. Why? Why would a person do this? Why do you want to do this? I mean, I can understand the desire to want to be on top of mountains. It's beautiful. Natasha and I had the privilege many years ago um, to go up on one of the mountains in the Alps in Switzerland and go right at the top there and uh, see that amazing view, the vista and the glaciers, and it's so beautiful and clean and quiet and so wonderful up there. But the greatest part about that experience is we took a train up. <laughs> took us about... 
a little bit less than an hour, and we were at the top. The roughest part of the experience was, it was the Jungfrau. I don't know how many of you have ever done the Jungfrau Joch when you ride up to the, to the top there of the Jungfrau. And we were in this train, and it's a wonderful train. It's, it's about at an angle like this that the train rides in this tunnel that was carved out of the mountain. So they put this train in the tunnel and up you ride. And we were with a bunch of Chinese in the, in the train. It was just us and Chinese. Lots of photos being taken. Great excitement. It was wonderful. And as we were riding in this train, it's, you, you really can't see outside of the train. It's pretty dark. You can just see in the train. But at certain points, we were, Natasha was sitting here next to me by the window, um, the light sort of flickered, and she suddenly realized that the side of the train is about this far from the wall of this cavern that they dug out, this tunnel. So you're literally in this little space, actually, with this whole massive mountain on top of you. Now, she doesn't do well in tight spaces. She, she's, her spatial judgment isn't all that she's here this morning. I've asked her permission to say this. So um, she, uh, her spatial judgment isn't that great. So when she's in a space like that, and, and this was many years ago, I didn't understand how bad it was for her when she feels this. Um, she, I was sitting and looking, and, and she turned pale, completely pale. Just in a moment, in an instant like that, she turned completely pale. And I went, what's going on with you? And, it was just, and that was the roughest part of our experience. So she would have probably preferred walking up. I was fine with the train. <laughs> I, it's wonderful to be on mountains, but why would you want to do the difficult thing of you know, walking up there? And I, when I've asked people that question that do it, there's no answer they can give me that satisfies me, that makes me want to go, I want to do it also. They can tell me about, you know, challenging yourself and, you know, pushing yourself in your boundaries and the freedom and the beauty. And I go, I'm so glad it works for you. It stirs nothing in me. I, you know, I'm very happy if I can find a train or some way, a plane up there, I'll join you. But, you know, you can enjoy the walk. That question, why, is a question we can ask of people in so many things in their lives. If you ask Alison Hargreaves that I said, she died by living. Why? Why, why that? It makes me think of a question Jesus once asked. And you know when Jesus asks questions, it's not because he's looking for the answer, it's because he's wanting us to think about something. And in John 1 verse 38, Jesus asked a bunch of guys that started walking off behind him, that started following him. He asked them this great question in John 1, 38. It says, Jesus looked around and saw them following, and he asked them, what do you want? What do you want? Why are you following me? Why are you coming here behind me? Why, why are you, why do, why do I, when I look around, there you are. What do you want? Do you think Jesus was looking for the answer? No, he was purposefully asking them. And that's a great question. For any person that says, I'm going to follow Christ, and that's what it means to be a disciple, isn't it? is to follow Jesus, to learn from Him, to model your life after Him. I think it's a very necessary question for each of us to allow the Lord to ask us. If you start following Him and saying, I'm a disciple of Christ, what do you want? Why are you doing this? Why are you following Christ? What, what are you expecting to get out of this? Because generally we don't do things just because there's something we want. So I wonder for you this morning, if you say, I am a disciple of Christ, can I ask you that question? What do you want? What are you hoping to get out of it? What are you expecting is at the end of this? Or, or what is part of the journey? Why are you doing this? What do you want? 
What is your expectation? Do you expect that if you follow Christ, you'll become wealthy? Do you expect that if you follow Christ, you will have peace in everything? Do you expect that if you follow Christ, you know, life will be full of whale song and nice, just wonderful, beautiful? Do you, when you follow Christ, do you believe that it's about suffering? It's about, you know, hard life and proving yourself and challenging yourself. What do you want? What, what are you looking for in this? I think particularly it's a great question because in my experience, and it's my limited experience, but as I've shared it with others also, I think to be a disciple of Christ, it's the most difficult quest you'll ever be on. It's harder than climbing a mountain. I think it's that case for various reasons because first of all, being a disciple of Christ is a 24-7, 365, 366 days a year, every minute, every hour quest. It's not something you do and then tap out and take a break. You don't do it for a season. You don't do it on a specific day of the week. You don't do it in a specific time of your life. It's every day, all day. It's also not just that it's every day, all day. It also involves everything about you, doesn't it? You can't say I'm a disciple of Christ in this area of my life. I'm a disciple in my worship life, but not in my work life. You can't say that. To be a disciple involves everything. So when Jesus turns around and says to these guys, what do you want? What is your expectation? Because if the expectation was anything less than actually what Jesus was talking about, how many of you know they would fail and not go the distance and not be able to make this? They, they, at some point they'll go, this is not doing what I, what I thought it would. And so often that's the challenge for us as disciples. So I ask you again this, this great question, what do you want? Why are you on this quest? Why are you on this journey? Now, perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I'm not a follower of Christ. I, I've not made that decision and you've just convinced me not to do it. Then please stay with us. Please stay with us because I think there's a good reason. But it is a tall order. Now, to gain some understanding and to answer this question, Paul really helps us through his writings. And one of the places that he wrote that wasn't just for a, a, a local church, but a, a, actually the epistle he wrote, we understand it was for, for many churches together, is the book of Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, he helps us to answer this question about what do you want? What do you want? This challenge of, of being a disciple, like I said, is very challenging because it asks every moment of your life and it asks everything of your life. Because like, if you think of Alison Hargreaves, like I said, she died by living. A disciple of Christ lives by dying. Just think about that. She died by living. By to the fullest extent doing what she wanted to do in life and by for the fullest extent being out there and challenging herself. The challenge of a disciple is we live by dying. Is, didn't Jesus say, take up your cross daily and follow me? If you want to be a disciple, take up your cross. Didn't Jesus say, unless a, a seed falls into the ground and dies, it, it, will not, it will not grow, it will not achieve that for which it was purposed? Didn't Paul write and say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? 
Doesn't the scripture speak about denying ourselves? So this is quite a very difficult thing to think about. For us, to live is to die. So what, what do you want? Why are you on this quest? Why are you prepared to do this journey? And that's what Paul does for us, and we're going to spend time over the next six weeks after today and unpacking and looking through the book of Ephesians as he helps us to understand this dynamic. So today I'm just setting you up and join us. Hopefully you'll join us on this journey. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians very particularly, as he always does. He's such a masterful writer, such a, such a great person in using of words and the pictures that he draws in his language. But he wrote the book of Ephesians in two halves. The first half of the book of Ephesians is chapter 1 to 3, where he talks about everything that God did for us. He talks about our position in Christ. He talks about the blessings we have in Christ, what Jesus gave us, what we received from God. And then chapter 4, 5, and 6, he, he switches over and he starts talking about how our response should be to that. So if, if chapter 1 to 3 is about being positioned in Christ, chapter 4, 5, and 6 is about the practice of being in Christ. So if a disciple's life is to be looked at, you have to have these two parts to it. It's what you believe and what you do that both makes the life of a disciple is what Paul communicates to us. And so as we read through the book of Ephesians and, 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 and consider some things and meditate on it, there'll be sections that we'll do that'll be about what are the things that we believe? What are the, what are the things that we hold to be true and that we believe God did for us, and, and then there'll be the parts that we'll do about how do we now live according to that, and what is our response to that. But right smack bang in the middle of the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 1, so it's right there at the divide between the two, is the central verse of Ephesians, the whole epistle. And I just want to share a few thoughts with you about that, and then I'm finished. Ephesians 4, verse 1 says the following, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. So Paul says, now I've spoken to you in chapter 1, 2, and 3 about everything that God has done for you. Now I beg of you in chapter 4, 5, and 6 to live a life that measures up to that which God has done for you in chapter 1, 2, and 3. But it's that crux matter, he says, it's not just what you believe, it's also what you do that matters. And he's not introducing to us a gospel of works that says we've got to work to approve, be approved by God. He's just saying, if what God has done is real, then it will have a real effect in our lives. And he starts talking to us about what that is. Now, he uses very particular language in that sentence, which unfortunately in the English was a bit lost. But in the original Greek, there's two words I want to focus on. First of all, the word, in, which I didn't have in this translation, but if you read Ephesians 4 verse 1 in the New American Standard, it says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy. The first word I want to just say something about is the word walk. Walk. So Paul says, your life, your practice, and we've spoken about walking before, must be a walk that you do with the Lord. Now the word in the Greek for, the, for walk is peripateo. Peripateo. Consists of two Greek words. Peri, which is a familiar word to us, which means everything. Around. All around. So therefore we use the word periscope. 
When you, you know, in a, in a submarine and you push up that and it can look all the way around, 360 degrees around you, that's peri. You can see everything. The word scope or scope in that, uh, uh, not scope, sorry, pateo, the word used in the Greek there is the word to walk. So in the Greek, it's word peripateo. Now, if you can't, like me, if you need to remember that word, peripateto helps. I just call talk about peripateto. So to peripateto means in everything you do to have the full picture of who Christ is and to let that be seen in your life. So to walk means not in, like I said earlier, in certain parts of your life or certain places or certain times. But do you know that as a disciple of Jesus, every moment of your life matters as a disciple? There's no place you can go or thing you can do that you're not doing as a disciple. Because that's what peripotato tells us. So you are peripotatoing. You are a little Simba peripotato. Just remember that. Everything. The second word that he uses is the word worthy. So first he says we must walk in everything, but then he describes our walk as being worthy. And the word worthy there is the word axios. And literally that word was a word that came from this. If you look at this that I have in front of you, which is a scale, mostly associated by us as the scales of justice, in our modern language, because we don't really use these in life anymore. But in their times, this was a very useful item. When you went and purchased something, the people that you purchased something from had something like this. In many places, you used it. But as the scale, this horizontal part that you see here, this is the axios, this part. And the idea of a scale, a scale is in its right position when this is horizontal and in balance. So if I'm gonna use this scale and charge you for something I buy, when you walk up to me, you wanna look at the Axios and say, is this Axios right? Because if the Axios actually looks like this, how many of you know you're gonna pay for something that you didn't get? And that's literally what they would sometimes do. The guy would slyly put, be able to charge you more because the Axios wasn't right. So Paul uses this picture and he says, if you wanna live a life worthy, of God, your axios has to be in the right level. Otherwise, you're shortchanging God. Now, how does he apply that? So in chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, he tells us everything God did for you and for me. And everything God did, he loaded onto this scale. So Jesus died for me, forgave my sins. He gave me grace. In him, I was chosen he speaks in being chosen in Ephesians. In him I was redeemed. In him I was positioned as a co-heir with Christ. And the scripture says every spiritual blessing has been given to me. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. So I am very blessed. And the scales have been tipped in my favor. Amen? Is that your life? Can you recognize that? This is the grace of God. You didn't deserve this. You didn't even ask for this. But God gave it to you. But that's not the end of the story. Because if I want to live a life worthy, I've got to address this problem that we now have. And how do I address that problem? So Paul in chapter 4, 5, and 6 starts talking very practically to us. He starts talking to us as husbands, as parents, as fathers, as wives. 
He starts talking to us. As members of a spiritual community, he starts talking to us. And he starts telling us ways how we should live if we are going to redress this and create the axios to be in the right position. And he starts saying there's expectations on our lives that we have to respond so that we can bring that balance back. Now, this is not God and me. This is all my life. Understand that. So this is quite challenging, isn't it? Because if I look at this and I see the perfect Christ, and remember we spoke about that the last two weeks, I see the sacrifice, I see how he's forgiven, how much he's done, how he died on a cross. And if I look at that on that side, and now you tell me that I've got to somehow, you know, tilt this scale, I go, hey, that's unfair. I can't do it. It's not even possible. Let's just apply it to me as a husband. I'm, I'm married to the most wonderful, special, beautiful, exceptional person in the world. She has one flaw. She does not ever put the toilet you know, paper on that little device by the toilet. That's her only flaw in life. She never, ever does that. She can never put that toilet roll on that thing, as simple as it is. She can't do that. It's just beyond her. So we got married, and it's all wonderful, and I love her. But, you know, it didn't take too long. It started just scratching a little bit inside you. Can a person not do this simple little job? And it started scratching on the inside. And how many of you know when something like that starts scratching, I start forgetting how wonderful she is in every other area. All I, when I see her, the first picture in my mind... Is that toilet roll just standing there on the floor? That's all I see. It doesn't matter how wonderful the food is. It doesn't matter how much, you know, toilet roll. And my whole life, I start judging her because of that toilet roll. But now the Lord Jesus in intervenes. And one thing I've learned about the Lord Jesus is he's always on her side. <laughs> I've surrendered. So the Lord Jesus comes to me, and he says, you know, you may be really good at putting the toilet roll on the holder, but let me tell you about a few other things in your life that I had to forgive, that I had to be gracious and kind to you for, and had to help you with. And he sort of shows me this scale and how much he put in place. And he says, you know, don't you think if I've shown you so much grace and forgiveness that it's appropriate for you to do the same and to find a way to show grace and forgiveness to your wonderful wife. You know, he says that the first time. I don't journal it. I ignore it. I say, give me two scriptures, Lord. I need to know this is you. But you know the hound of heaven, he stays with you. And he keeps on speaking to me about it. And one day when I don't want to listen, he sort of pushes me in a corner and he says, now listen. And then I go, okay, okay, Lord. I will extend grace, forgiveness for this one flaw that my wife has. And it's amazing how when I say, okay, I'm, I'm just going to. She doesn't start now putting on the toilet roll all of a sudden. That doesn't change. 
But suddenly it's like something in me happens and I start realizing, man, my wife works really hard. I mean, she works full days. She has lots of responsibility that she carries. She just has, you know, so many things. She's probably sometimes busier than what I am. But she still comes home and makes us food. Isn't it okay that I take care of the toilet roll? Isn't that like the least I can do? You know, perhaps it's okay if I do the toilet roll. And suddenly now I put the toilet roll up. I've just discovered I'm the only one in my family that does it, not even. So now I'm dealing with the issues with the children, you know. But what God does is by the power of the Holy Spirit, He doesn't say to me, I must do the same because I can't. But He says, allow my Spirit to work in you. So that as my Spirit works in you, your story will become a different story. Because not only will you be forgiven, but you will give forgiveness. And that's how the world changes. And I start... I lost a block somewhere along the way, so I'm going to cheat, sorry. Now this thing, I don't know, is it balanced now? Hey, praise the Lord. And then eventually what happens is, as God works with me, and this is my lifelong journey, this balance He creates in my life. I can't do it. It's not expectation on me. It's not works, now work, you know. In all honesty, to forgive Natasha for the toilet roll isn't me, I forgive her, I forgive her, I forgive her, I forgive her. It's more about realizing how much I've been forgiven. And suddenly that mountain makes that little thing insignificant. It's a revelation of who he is. When I struggle with impatience, anger, bitterness, desires that are incorrect, lustful thoughts, it's all because in that area, I don't understand yet what God has done for me. But as that grows in me, and I understand, and then start applying that, not just knowing it, but doing it, that's why I've entitled this message, Being and Doing, then things change. Worship team guys, won't you join me on the stage? So I want to leave this little line with you. And this line I'm going to repeat throughout this series and the other preachers that will preach will use this line also. This line simply goes, the disciples' belief must be matched by the disciples' action. The disciples' belief, and that must is not a must that puts an expectation on you. It's a must that says, if what God has done is true, it will produce in my life. Amen? And I just yield to that. I allow, by getting to know God more and stepping into His grace, more and more of that happens. So our life is about dying. We live to die. To die to the smallness of myself. To die to the unforgiveness of my heart. To die to the selfishness of my being and to allow Christ to make me so much more than what I could ever have been on my own. Won't you stand with us? I want to ask you guys, Gerben, if you'll just lead us in a song. I want us to just sing a song together. Gerben will choose. 
And in this song, I would like you to just say, here I am, Lord. I want to come right back to that question I asked you in the beginning. Why, what do you want? What do you want? I can tell you what I want. I just want to love Jesus. I just want to follow Him. And whatever that leads, whatever that leads to, that's His responsibility. I just want to be part of Him because He's so awesome and He's so great. And He did so much for me. Can I just experience something of that? That's all I want. That's not where I started my journey with Him necessarily, but that's where I am now. What do you want? Lord, I thank you that in you we have life and we have life in abundance. That you've made it possible for us to live lives so much more, much bigger than climbing the tallest mountain, much deeper than going to the lowest place, much wider than the east and the west. Lord, you've created for us life eternal with you and in your presence and as your co-heirs and as your followers and as your, your people, Lord. And I pray that for each of us, Lord, in Jesus' name. By your Spirit, come and let us live lives worthy of the calling that you have given us, Lord. Thank you that each person here is called by you, positioned by you, and can live the life that you have called them to live. Lord, I speak your blessing over us all today. May the grace of the Lord and may the peace of God abound to you. May you experience Him in every area of your life as He has His way and does His will in Jesus' name. It will be our privilege to pray with people this morning if, as we end the service now. Come to the front and if you want prayer, if you want to talk to somebody about being a disciple of Christ and being a follower of Jesus, let us pray with you and come and talk to one of our pastors and the elders and our leaders that will be here. But thank you for being with us this morning. We look forward to seeing you next week here or through the week in any of the life groups or any other place where we get to interact with you. May the grace of the Lord be upon you.